This is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done. Quick warning at the top, this show gets into some detail about some pretty terrible conditions at a prison in Mississippi, including a description of a suicide attempt. When I asked Alicia Santo how bad things were inside Mississippi's Wilkinson County Correctional Facility, she whipped out her phone and said, here, I'll show you. So this is one of the guys. This is our messaging. Um, is that a knife? Yes. That's it, a photo he took of someone else holding a shank. These are messages from prisoners. And if you're like me and you're thinking, how did a bunch of prison inmates get cell phones? That is the least remarkable thing about the story Alicia is about to tell you. There's cell phones all over that place. Like every, it's, it's a wash in cell phones and weapons and drugs, too. Alicia is a reporter for The Marshall Project. Her niche is prison coverage. The fact that there were cell phones and weapons in this facility, it just doesn't shock her the way it shocked me. So because the prison is falling apart, there's exposed metal and... Prisoners are taking out pieces of metal and sharpening them and making knives. One of the weapons was a 48-inch spear-like instrument. There was a 6-inch toothbrush with a razor attached on it. Some people use them. Some people just keep them because they're afraid they're going to get attacked and they feel that they need to be armed with something. The prisoners told Alicia they need to be armed because they don't trust the guards to protect them. Um... At one point, somebody inside committed suicide, and I got multiple calls that day from people who had witnessed the entire incident. Uh, He slit his own throat, they said, and they had watched it happen. Uh, He had been threatening that he was going to kill himself, and then he went to the medical unit, and he got sent back, and there was a whole back and forth where they say that the staff said, well, you got to cut deeper if you really want to get that done. That's what they say that the staff said. And the guy did end up... Dying and, and interestingly, Joe was getting calls as well. Your reporting partner. That's right, from people who were working there who also said the same thing. Yeah, if I could break in there. Joe Neff reported alongside Alicia. We were getting these same calls, she from the inmates, me from the staff, and they were absolutely lining up. You know, it, it's just remarkably powerful that we're hearing about this same negligence and this guy's suicide at the same time but she's hearing it from inmates and I'm hearing it from staff and they're corroborating each other. So who's running this facility? Well, I mean, the gangs are running the facility. The gangs are running the facility. The gangs are running a 950-bed American prison. Today, Alicia and Joe are going to tell me the story of what is going on inside Wilkinson County Correctional Facility in the southwestern corner of Mississippi. It seems like the prison is spiraling out of control. But the question now is, will anyone be held responsible? I'm Mary Harris. You are listening to What Next? Stay with us. 
This episode is brought to you by Discover. When it comes to your finances, Discover wants you to know they are the credit card that is always there for you. With 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, that means no more waiting for, quote, normal business hours just to get a hold of someone. We are talking real service from real people whenever you need it. Get the customer service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. This prison in Mississippi, the Wilkinson County Correctional Facility, it's run by a private company called MTC. They run all three of Mississippi's private prisons. And this company commissioned an audit. It was to take a good, hard look at how Wilkinson was being managed. The audit was done by a former federal prison manager and several MTC employees. It was supposed to be an internal audit, but reporters Joe F. and Alicia Santo got a hold of it. Joe says it was shocking. It paints such a horrible picture of this prison. The roof is leaking all over the place. That's why you have water in the cells and mattresses are soaking and homemade weapons all over the place. There's drugs. Gang leaders would walk around the prison escorted by members of their gang. There's gang graffiti everywhere. The staff can't do basic correctional functions like account. You know, inmate count, you see it in the movies all the time. You stand in front of your cell to make sure you're in the right place. They weren't doing counts. The auditors said that they just never had the feeling that the staff was in control. And you talked about how prisoners would go missing because they wouldn't do those head counts. So, you know, they wouldn't know where people were. Correct. So there's an inmate named Thomas Burks. He was smoking a lot of meth and spice and was really irritating his inmate, his cellmate. His cellmate drags him and his mattress down the hall and puts him in another cell block. So here is an inmate doing cell assignment, not management. Thomas Burks is in his unassigned, unauthorized cell for seven days. Now, there's supposed to be several counts every day. This would show that, hey, you're in the wrong cell. Go back. He's in that cell for seven days, and his new cellmate, after seven days, strangles him and kills him. How do you even let an inmate be in an unauthorized cell? It's like it's just a symbol of the lack of control. Huh. How'd you get your hands on these documents? Well, the the audit uh, we got through, um, well, I just can't tell you how we got it, but we have it. The other, uh, these other records are in lawsuits um, that have been filed against the prison and filed against the, uh, the company. They come out of the discovery process. And some are shared with us by just people who are really irritated about what's going on. You guys got in touch with MTC the place that runs this prison, what did they say when you reached out to them and said, hey, what's going on here? Their message was that things are getting better. They fixed all this. And then you keep getting contacts from inmates again and again saying, yeah, it's not getting better. Exactly. Alicia, do you want to jump in here? I mean, the audit itself is shocking. It confirms all the things people were saying. Like, Can you imagine just being in a cell that's wet and a bed that's wet every day? Staff were being injured all the time. One of the things the audit mentions is that that there were OSHA records from 2018 that showed uh, 71 employee injuries, which was a rate of workplace injury triple that of the MTC average. Hmm. 
36 of those 71 injuries were a direct result of inmate violence on staff. Joe, I want to go back to you because one of the things that stood out to me about these documents is that the warden, he says very clearly, he literally says, it ain't right, but it's the truth. He knows this isn't a way to run a prison, but it just seems to be the way things are done. Do we have any good ideas about why? Yes. One of the original sins of, of this prison and of uh, is that it's short-staffed. Every shift, according to the audit, there were two or three critical positions open. And these are security positions. They're not a bookkeeper or um, some, a teacher. These are critical positions to keep the place safe. And two or three are empty every shift. You're seating control that way. Why are there so few staff members? Is it an intentional decision to cut costs or is it something else? They can't hire. They're having a very difficult time hiring. They pay eleven twenty-five an hour, and they want people to come work in this facility for eleven twenty-five an hour. I think you said they had ninety percent turnover yes. over the course of a year. That's correct. So you know, one year's staff is likely to be completely different than the next year's, and that's a huge problem because that means people are new. They are still learning. They don't know the inmates they're dealing with that well yet. New staff are going straight to the solitary unit, which is the most difficult unit, one of the most difficult. And they were blaming that on the for the high, part of the reason for the high turnover is they were sending brand new people into the most difficult area of the prison on their first day. Huh. Another thing that jumped out to me when I looked at your reporting was the fact that this warden who's giving this awful inside information about the prison, he talks about going to the Department of Corrections in Mississippi, and basically being advised, this is how you do this. When you're short-staffed and when you have a prison that you're having trouble running, you get the gangs to do your dirty work for you. So why do you focus on the private prison aspect? Well, we focus on the private prison because we happen to get a internal corporate document that really opened this place up to the world. Private prisons, you know, they're trying to make a profit, so a shorter staffing ratio is good for them because uh, personnel is the biggest cost. They're not paying people much, as Alicia mentioned. They're the vacant positions, uh, you save money that way. So there, there is a contradiction here between running a safe and constitutional prison and the profit motive. That said, the public prisons in Mississippi, by all accounts, aren't much better. Hmm. I wonder what that means about how we are in charge of these prisons. Like, how, how did private prisons become something we even did? It seems very clear that there are issues with private prisons. How did it become a solution? It was back in the 1980s. Uh, during the Reagan administration, there was a lot of talk about let's, you know, privatize government functions. They can be more efficient. They can be cheaper. And several companies came up. One was a Corrections Corporation of America, now called CoreCivic. The other was Wackenhut, which is now known as GEO. And so they went around and built prisons, lobbied legislatures, and argued, you know, we can do it cheaper. Build a prison and let us run it. 
I do think it's also just worth pointing out that, you know, private prisons have their own problems, obviously. And I think a lot of people are very grossed out by the profit motive of a private prison. But most prisons are public. Rikers Island is public. Like, you know, places that we know are very... (laughs) very unpleasant places to be where you could not you could go there and maybe not come out are run by our government. Well, Joe, you've been in touch with some of the people who work in this prison. What do they tell you about the working conditions and what do you what do they tell you about why they're there? Well, they're there because they have to put food on the table and make the mortgage payments and the car payments. So they it is a job and many of them feel very scared or They feel that upper management doesn't have their back. They're confiscating homemade knives and shanks on a daily basis. They don't feel safe. It's interesting to hear both of you talk about the fact that the prisoners and the people who work in the prison have this shared interest. And obviously the prisoners, they're not voting. They're not sort of members of larger society in a way. But the people who work in the prison are... I just wonder if they've ever considered teaming up in some way and sort of presenting what's happening, not just to journalists, but to their local officials and sort of explaining, like, we need an intervention here. It would be really dangerous for staff or inmates to do that, uh, given the reality that the management has ceded control to the gangs. It'd be dangerous for an inmate to go on the record and say, this is what's going on, because they'll be retaliated against. Uh, And the same for staff. Staff who blow the whistle, they either get fired or they're retaliated against. So what is the fix here? I think that one of the most important things that is missing here is oversight of this prison. The state should be in there making sure that the roof's not leaking, making sure that the staff's filled, making sure that Why are there so many weapons? Why are so many injuries, attacks, and killings? That is a government function, to make prisons safe. I mean, one of the fundamental problems when you write about prisons and prisoners is there's a segment of the population that thinks, good, that's how it should be. So a politician has to really get out there and say, like, this can't be okay for incarcerated people in our state. But will they do that? Yeah. Courts are kind of like the last resort here because they can rule on what's constitutional behavior and what's not. Correct. So you can, there are organizations like the ACLU or the Southern Poverty Law Center that bring lawsuits over prison conditions. And there's been a history of them in in Mississippi. But so you're kind of relying on a nonprofit that is trying to do what they believe is the right thing that's part of their mission to make sure the Constitution is lived up to. But it's it's a little bit hit and miss because they can't uh, sue over every bad prison. They have limited resources, so they have to target certain places. And there is, in Mississippi, there was a really violent youth prison that MTC was managing that was eventually closed down in 2016. There's an ongoing lawsuit against the Eastern Mississippi prison, which is also run by MTC and has a terrible problem with gangs. Uh, And then we have Wilkinson. There's no lawsuit yet. Should there be? Could ask these organizations. Joseph Neff, Alicia Santo, thank you so much for joining me. 
Thank you. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. Joseph Neff and Alicia Santo are staff writers for The Marshall Project. All right, that's the show. What Next is hosted by me, Mary Harris, and it is produced by Mary Wilson, Jason DeLeon, and Ethan Brooks. Hey, did you know that Slate puts out another daily podcast and that it's fantastic? It's called The Gist. It's hosted by Mike Pesca, and he's got a delightful show waiting in his feed for you right now. He interviewed the CEOs of C-SPAN. They've just put out a book ranking U.S. presidents. And let's face it, these guys know what they're talking about. Who doesn't love a power ranking? Go check it out right now at The Gist. All right. Talk to you tomorrow.